Well, good morning, Living Hope. How are you today? It is a joy to be with you. I thank you so much for this opportunity uh, to come and share in your church. Uh, your pastor has been uh, one of the dearest people in my life for over 20 years, and I have admired your church, your ministry, and have loved him, and thank God for all that God's doing in his life, and uh, will continue to do so. So I just count it a real privilege to come and have the opportunity to share God's Word with you uh, this morning. Now, I have just gotten back from a couple of weeks of vacation with six grandchildren. And so if at any time I were to break into the voice of Mickey Mouse during this message, you'll understand. Uh, old toodles is not a theological term. Uh, that's something that the preschoolers, they will they'll understand that. Uh, but again, thank you for allowing me to be here with you uh, today. Let's, let's pray together and then we're going to jump into this message. Our Father, we thank you for this day. It is the Lord's Day. And we pray that it is far more than simply a designation of a calendar. We pray, Father, that it is the declaration of our heart that we are here for one purpose, and that is to worship you and to offer you the deepest expressions of gratitude and thanksgiving. We've come here from every walk of life, and we ask, O oh God, that regardless of where we may be in our spiritual journey right now, that for each one of us there will be a fresh encounter with the living God through the person of the Holy Spirit. And so, Holy Spirit, we welcome you in this place. We ask that you will speak to each and every one of us. Help us to apply the Word of God to life so that we are more conformed to the image that you desire for us to be in the world in which we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I have to tell you that when I got here this morning, the first thing, uh, when I left the hotel, uh, I, I got here on the campus, and they were putting up signs that said, uh, no coffee uh, because of the water. Well, one, that kind of freaked me out because I have to have about six cups this hour of the day to get, get going, and then I thought, Man, all the honorary Baptists that are going to be in church today in Bowling Green, this, this could be tough. And I don't know how many of you had a chance to shower or not. If you didn't, there's some empty pews in the top. We'd like for you to go up there and, and just sit there if you would. <laughs> One of my favorite authors is Robert Fulgram, and he writes this little story. You'll identify with it pretty quickly. He says, In the early dry dark of an October Saturday evening, the neighborhood children are playing hide-and-seek. Anybody ever play hide-and-seek in, in your life? I asked my grandkids about that, and they said, hey, is that an app? Could we get that app? Uh, we'd, we'd love to play that. He says, how long since I have played hide-and-seek? 30 years, maybe more. I remember how, and I could become a part of the game in a moment if invited. But adults don't play hide-and-seek, not for fun anyway, and that's too bad. Did you ever have a kid in your neighborhood, he says, who always did so good that nobody could find him? We did. And after a while, we would give up on him and go off, leaving him to rot wherever he was. And sooner, sooner or, or later, he would, would show up all mad because we didn't keep looking for him. And we would get mad back because he wasn't playing the game the way it was supposed to be played. There's hiding, and then there is finding, we would say. And he would say, it's hide and seek, not hide and give up. And we would all yell about who made the rules and who cared about who in any way and how we wouldn't play with him anymore if he couldn't get it straight, and who needed him anyhow, and things like that. Hide and seek and yell. No matter what, though, the next time we would hide, uh, he would hide to again, 
he, he, he's probably still hidden somewhere for all we know. As I write this, the neighborhood game goes on. And there's a kid under a pile of leaves in the yard just under my window. He's been there a long time now, and everybody is found, and they are about to give up on him over at the home base. I considered going over to the base and telling them where he is hiding. And I thought about setting the leaves on fire to drive him out. And finally, I just yelled, get found, kid, get found. Scared him so bad, he wet his pants and started crying and ran home to tell his mom. It's real hard to know how to be helpful sometimes. Although we are not children any longer, sometimes we still play hide and seek, but we play it grown-up style. There are times when we want to hide, we need to be sought, and we get confused about being found. We'll say things like, well, I don't want anyone to know. And what will people think? I don't want to bother anyone. Well, one day, there was a group of people, much like us, and they were confused about this whole thing of hide and seek, and Jesus wanted to teach them a very important spiritual lesson about life. And so what would Jesus typically do when he was with a group of people? What did he typically do? It's real simple. I just think for a second. Read the Gospels. What did Jesus do? He told stories. He told stories. So he said, I'm going to tell you this story. So there's a story with which you're very, very familiar. It's found in the book of Luke chapter 15, if you want to turn there. And he divides the story into three different sections. He talks about a lost sheep, a lost coin, a lost son. But he's telling them this story to help them understand the problem that we all have and also their value to God. Now, I will assure you that if you run through the first couple of verses and you don't stop and identify who's listening, you're going to really miss the importance of the story that Jesus tells. So look what it says, beginning in verse 1. He says, Now all the tax gatherers and the sinners were coming near to listen to him. There are going to be two distinctive groups here. The tax gatherers and the sinners who represented the very irreligious. The tax gatherers had bid and won the right to collect tolls for the Roman government. And the profit that they made was determined by how much they collected and that their bid had, had paid in advance for this great abuse. They were hated and despised by their fellow Jews. They were people who were so dishonest that they, by law, could not testify in a court of law. And the scripture says, here they are, and they're listening with another group of people, and, and he uses a very generic term, he just he just calls them sinners. He doesn't go into, into their specific sins. He says, you've got these tax gatherers and all of these sinners. And you can use your imagination who may have been in this group of people. So you've got this group of people listening to this story. But then he goes on and he says, and both the Pharisees and the scribes begin to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and he eats with them. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, they were totally different from these folks. They represented the very, very religious. So you've got the irreligious and you've got the very religious. The, 
the Pharisees constituted the most important group of people uh, in Israel. They, they appeared as Jesus' opponents in the gospel, the most numerous of any of the groups that are mentioned. Uh, Josephus says that there were about 6,000 of them, and they controlled the synagogues, and they exercised great control over the general population. The very name Pharisee meant the separated one, and it may mean that they separated themselves from the masses of people like these, or they may have separated themselves to study and interpretation of the law. They were the developers of the oral tradition, the teachers of the twofold law, both the written law as it had been received, but then the oral law and all of the additions that were being added at the time. And they saw the way to God as being through absolute obedience to the law. The scribes were a more even select group developed by New Testament times. They interpreted the law, they taught it to the disciples, and they were experts where people were accused of breaking the law of Moses. So now get this picture in mind. Over here, who we have? We have the very irreligious, okay? The very irreligious. And who do we have over here? Come on, talk back time. The very religious. So you've got two very different groups of people listening to one story. Now, we all bring our filters to the moment when someone is talking to us. But here's a group of people, and they have a filter that says something like this. If God were going to have a party, we would never get invited. I mean, we are not the church-growing crowd over here. So if God were going to have a party, we our names would not be on the invitation list. These people, on the other hand, would say, if God were going to have a party, our name would be at the top of the list because we are very religious people. So keep that in mind, those two different groups of people who are listening to this story. And we're going to go through this very quickly. It says in, in verse 4, he talks about this lost sheep. He says, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety and ninety in the open pasture, and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. And when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, say to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found the sheep which was lost. And then he goes a little deeper, and he says, Or what woman, if she has ten silver coins and loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. And then he gets into the longer part of the story, beginning in verse 11. And he says, A certain man had two sons. And a younger them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey to a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. He was longing to fill his stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he says, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? I'm dying here with hunger. I'll get up, I'll go to my father, I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. He got up. He came to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. He felt compassion for him. He ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to the father, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves or servants, Quickly, bring out the best robe. Put it on him. Put a ring on his hand, sandals on his feet. And bring the fat calf. Kill it. Let us eat and be merry. For the son of mine was dead, has come to life again. He was lost. He's been found. And they began to be merry. Now, when you read that text, you're going to find some very common themes that are taking place in this story. Number one, something of great value was missing. Something that really mattered. It started with a shepherd who had lost a sheep. And then a woman who had lost a coin. And ultimately, it became a man who had been separated from his son. Our tendency in the American church today is to drift away from genuinely valuing the spiritually confused. We forget how much they matter to God. How do you feel about those people who show up in your church just at Easter and Christmas? One cynic calls them the oncers. They only come once a year. They sit in our seats. They take up our parking. They generally leave a mess for us to clean up. And we tend to make armchair assessments of who God has use for and who he doesn't. And before you know it, we can reduce our list of who really matters to God down to our little group. And the list almost never includes those outside our circle. As long as we believe that these people do not matter to God, we're never going to get worked up about trying to reach them. But here's what we really have to remember. You and I are never going to look into the face of another person that God does not love and into the eyes of someone that Jesus did not die for. doesn't matter where you go. I've ministered in 43 countries around the world. And I will tell you, I've never been to a country where I looked and said, oh, that person doesn't matter to God right there. That person matters as much to God as the people in Franklin, Tennessee or Bowling Green, Kentucky. So there's this theme, this first thing, something of great value was missing. A shepherd was willing to leave the flock. A woman closed up her house, swept the floor looking for the coin. And if you caught this, this part of, of the story about the son, it says, while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. And I'll tell you why he saw him, because he was looking for him. He was looking for him. One author says, Jesus was not crucified in a cathedral between two candles, but on a cross between two thieves, on the town garbage heap, at a crossroads so cosmopolitan that they had to write his title in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek, at the kind of place where cynics talk smut and thieves curse and soldiers gamble, because that is where he died and that is who he died for. That is what the church ought to be about, reaching those people who are far, far from there, there's a second theme in this story. And again, you see it in each one of these little paragraphs. That which was missing was important enough to warrant an all-out search. Something was lost, 
And now we've got to go look for this for this thing. Let's go back to the game of, of hide and seek for just a moment. Do you remember when you played hide and seek when you first got together? There was something that had to be established. What was it? Who was going to be it? Not the captain, not the leader, not the general. It. It. I can remember many, many years ago when I was a young Bible college student, one of our denominations had a, uh, an evangelistic campaign nationally, and, and the little bumper sticker said, I found it. Well, that's not quite theologically true because the real truth is it found me. Luke 19.10 says, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. John 3.16 declares, God so loved the world, He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have an everlasting or eternal life. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates His love toward us, and while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. 1 John 4.10, And this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us, and sent His Son to be the propitiation or the sacrifice for our sins. Every one of those verses make one statement. God says, I'm it. I'm it. Now, who's listening? The very irreligious and the very religious. And God says, I'm now, I will show you, by this time, the filters are kicking in. We always thought that the way to God was just to do all the things that the rules tell us to do. These people are beginning to hear a new story, and the story goes something like this. We are people of worth and value, even though we've been told we're not people of worth and value. God says He is it. He is coming to seek and to save people like us. You understand that the church is the only society in the world that exists for the benefits of its non-members. For those who are yet to walk in these doors. For people who live on our blocks, in our community, in houses right next to us, we exist for the purpose of reaching those people. It through us. God reconciling the world to himself. And then there's, there's a third thing here. This is a, which is wonderful. Finding, finding results in rejoicing. Have you ever found something that was lost or had been lost in you and then when you found it, I mean, you just had a happy moment? You ever had that happen? Uh, when Patty and I were married, we had moved into a new house, and her mom came up from Birmingham to the house where we lived in Huntsville, Alabama, and she was helping Patty set the house up. And one night, probably 8, 30, 9 o'clock, she just kind of gasped, and we said, what's wrong? And she looked, and her husband had given her a beautiful pear-shaped diamond for, I think, what was their 25th or 26th anniversary at that time, and the diamond was missing. Well, this was a very expensive diamond, and so we just decided, man, we're, we're going we're gonna to search until we find this thing. We looked all over the house. We did all the things that you would typically do when you have that kind of thing going on. Couldn't find it anywhere. She thought, I, I, I've been to Kroger's earlier in the evening, so we called the Kroger store, and we talked to the manager. We told him exactly what was on the line. He said, listen, I will close this. I will lock the doors. 
I'll get the guys. We'll sweep the aisles right now. And if it's in here, we'll have it for you. 30, 40 minutes later, you call back and say, it's not here. But she so dreaded making that phone call to tell Leo that she had lost that dial. The girls asked me to run a late night errand, and I went out to get into my car, which she had driven to the Kroger's earlier that evening. And when I opened the door, there was this piercing light that just hit me in, in the eye. And that diamond was, was reflecting just off that little dome light in the car. There it was impaled into the carpet. Well, I picked it up, and I took it back in the house. And you know what I did with it? I made me some points with my mother-in-law. I got to tell you. She was a happy camper. And we jumped up and down, and we clapped, and we did all the things that you would celebrate. See, finding results in rejoicing. Uh, six months ago, I get up, I'm driving to the office like I typically do, and, and I went out, I put some things in my back seat, and evidently when I did, I had my cell phone, and I must have just stuck it on top of the car. Didn't, didn't notice it. Driving to the office, got in the busiest parkway in Franklin, Tennessee, and then just in my peripheral vision, I, I, I hear something go thump and something black, and I thought, man, I could have murdered God bless you, you're gone, you know? I go on to the office, I start my day, and then I begin to think, where's, where's my phone? i got to make a call. And I started looking, find, asked my sister, hey, have you seen my phone? She said, no, where have you been this morning? I said, well, I was upstairs missing some of the staff. She said, well, let's, let's go walk the halls. We'll find it. This went on for a couple of hours. We couldn't find it. I went to the little app, you know, find my phone. I, I put that in. It didn't register anything. I went back to my house thinking, okay, I've left it at home, and I went to all the places that I typically lose it, and I looked there, and it, it wasn't there. And I had a friend doing some carpentry work for me, and I said, hey, would you get in the car with me, and let's drive this parkway and just see. So he hopped in the car. We drove the busiest parkway in Franklin. I went to that spot where I thought I had uh, killed the bird. And we started looking very carefully. I drove very, very slowly. And Rob all of a sudden said, Rick, 50 yards, look up in front of us. And there in the emergency lane of that parkway was that phone. I went over. It had hit screen first. I picked it up, and you know what I saw? I mean, just spider web. Found the case about 10 yards away. Got in the car. It the reason to find my phone wouldn't work is the temperature sensor had, had triggered it. It had gone off. So I, I just held it in front of the air conditioning vent for a few moments. It cooled off and came on. I said, well, let's just go ahead. I'll drive to the Verizon store right now. Took it in. Said to the lady, look, look at my phone. Look what's happened. And I said, what's going to happen? I had a protective little cover on there, a little shield. I said, what's going to happen? She said, glass is going to go everywhere. I said, well, what have I got to lose? I pulled it off. Not a scratch on that screen. The only thing that had that spider web was, was that little shield protector right there. Well, i got to tell you, I, I don't know how your life is, but my life is kind of in that phone, you know? All of my contacts, 
all the people that I know, all the people that I care about, my calendar, everything's contained in that little phone. So when I had found that which was lost, what did I do? I rejoiced. I went back to Tosef. Everybody gets the rest of the day off. This, we're going to party, you know. I've had a bad day go good on me. This is wonderful. Scripture says this. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Luke 15, 10. In the same way, I tell you, there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Finding always leads to rejoicing. Or it should. What do you think these people over here, when they hear this story, what do you think they're they're thinking right now? I mean, they're they're saying, we got a shot at this. We never thought we had a shot, but we got a real shot at this. He came to seek us. Now, these folks over here ought to be just saying, didn't you hear the good news? He's come to seek and to save. And if you just repent, we're all going to party with you. That was not the end of the story that Jesus told. But back in verse 25, he says, Now his older brother, his older son, was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he, the servant, said to him, Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But he, the older brother, became angry, was not willing to go in, to the point the father came out and began entreating him. And the son said to the father, I have been serving you all these years. I've never neglected a command of yours, yet you've never given me a kid that I can make merry with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your wealth with harlots, he killed a fat cat. that statement says a lot about that man's heart. He did not even refer to him as when my brother came back. He says, when this son of yours who's devoured, devoured your wealth, which says he's more interested in that than in anything about his brother's life. But the father said, you've always been with me. All this mine is yours. We had to be married. We had to rejoice. For the son of yours was dead, has begun to live, was lost, and he's been found. Robert Stein from Southern Seminary, wonderful New Testament scholar, says, in seeking to understand the main point of the parable, the two, two important principles come into play. The first has been called the rule of end stress. This means that in a parable, as in most stories, the climax comes at the end. What comes at the end involves the antagonism of the older son towards his father. And you see that from the context of who's listening in those first couple of verses. He said a second principle involves the importance of direct discourse in a parable. And in these verses 29 through 32, such a discourse is found between the father and the older son. 
and this focuses attention on the older sons protesting his father's love toward his outcast brother. There's no similar conversation between the father and the young son that in stress of the parable and the presence of a lengthy discourse at the end indicates that the parable's main point is to be found in the interaction of the father and the older brother. The parable should be named after the main character in both halves of the parable. The parable of the gracious Something was lost, and something was found, and there was great rejoicing. Now I want to ask you, okay? I think I know the answer to this, but we all have to answer this privately. You have a church that has a wonderful reputation for caring about other people. You've got mission trips going all around the world. What's your personal attitude when it comes to something being found? Does it cause rejoicing inside? With someone that maybe looked more like this crowd comes to the Father, does it really cause you to rejoice? Sometimes we're worried about permissiveness, about the way the preaching of grace seems to say it's okay to do all kind of terrible things as long as you walk in afterwards and take the free gift of God's forgiveness. Well, let me just say, while you and I may be worried about seeming to give that kind of permission, Jesus apparently wasn't. He wasn't afraid of giving the prodigal son a kiss instead of a lecture, a party instead of probation, and he proved it by bringing in the elder brothers in the story and having him raise the same kind of objections that we do. He was angry about the parter. He complains that his father is lowering the standards, ignoring virtue, that music, dancing, and a fattened calf are all just in effect. Permissions to break the law. For that, Jesus has the father say only this one thing. Cut that out. We're not playing good boys, bad boys anymore. Your brother was dead. He's alive again. And the name of the game from now on is Resurrection. Something was lost, something was found, with great rejoicing. Do you know how many people there are in the world today who represent, stand in this circle right here, and they say, if, if God was having a party, I'd never get the invitation. And you are the man, the woman, the boy, or the girl that can provide that invitation to them. And unfortunately, I'm afraid we would be very distraught to know how many people there are, even in church today, who represent this group of people. And when they hear stories like that, they don't rejoice. They get a little angry. We've kept all the rules. We've done things right. They're bookkeepers. The main character of this story, folks, is not the younger son with all his permissive ways or even the older son with all his anger. The main character is the gracious father. And he is the one who loves each and every one and invites us into kingdom life with him. And this morning, we want to invite you into the life of God's kingdom.
If you feel like this is the group that you stand with most often, I want to hear. I want you to hear me saying, "Listen, God loves you." God has said, "I'm it. I'm seeking you. I'm coming after you." And if you're kind of over here in, in, in this crowd, let me just say this to you: You can leave the Father without ever leaving the Father. That is, your heart can get separated from God's heart even while we sit in church. And I just want to remind us, it's not what we do for Him, it's what He's done for us. And He invites all to know Him because of mercy and grace. Let's pray together this morning. pray, and then I'm going to invite you. Maybe you need this morning, maybe you're over here with this very irreligious crowd, and you need to understand God's inviting you to the party, and we're going to invite you to come this morning. But you may be represented in this other group of people, and somehow you've gotten a little confused, and you have really begun to think, what I do for him that makes him love me. No, that's not it. He loves you because that's who he is. He wants you to love everybody else because he loves you. So maybe this would be a time today for some personal, private repentance to say, God, give me a heart. Give me a heart for those who are far away from me today. Our Father, we come into your presence we thank you for such a wonderful story of grace and of mercy. We thank you that the gospel is so clear in this story that it is God who is the seeker of mankind. And I pray for the person who may be far, far away from you today. Lord, help them to hear the invitation come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Today's the day. Lord, for those of us who have exhibited the attitude of the older brother at times, God, forgive us. We repent before you. And we understand that we come to you the same way everyone else does, and that's through the blood of Christ, through the mercy and the grace that you offer. Now I pray that you would give us a heart for seeking and for rejoicing when they are found. We ask our prayer in Jesus' name.